Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. They were saying they got it right away. They got right on it. You don't turn that glue unless you've been without oxygen for 10 or 15 minutes. He's already brain damaged. He's already dead. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this uh, afternoon? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I am good. And I want to show you, we had our uh, our just... Uh, the Savannah office, uh, white elephant Christmas party. And so I was just going to show you what I got. It's called the uh, chicken flicking desktop uh, game. Like you shoot this chicken like this, like a rubber band. Oh, at these, at these cups. Um, so what so you're saying, that, that's what, that's you, what I'm going to be doing after we get off. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is there was an office party that I was not invited to. I'm sorry. It was just for Savannah and you, you decided to move to Atlanta. Okay. All right. <laughs> Nobody gave me presents up here. That's all I'm that's saying. Right. <laughs> um, well, anyway, you know what? My present is the, is the presence of our guests. <laughs> that's today. right. We do have some fantastic guests today. We do. And we're, we're continuing with the trend, Steve, because yes. our, our last episode was a, was a father and son team, father and son's team. Um, and we have a stellar father and son team from Houston, Texas on the show today. We have Jim M. Purdue Sr. and Jim M. Purdue Jr. So, um, Jims, thank you for being with us today. Our pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Glad to be here. Um, well, so let me tell our, our listeners a little bit about who you are before um, we get the case uh, we get into the case that we're here to talk about today. We have so much good stuff to talk about. Um, yeah today that I really can't wait. Um, so you can look up both gyms at purdueandkid.com. That's P-E-R-D-U-E and kid with two D's dot uh, com. Jim Purdue Jr. is a partner there. And and Jim Purdue Sr. is of counsel now because he's busy about doing a, a million other different things, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on Jim senior first and tell our listeners a little bit about him. Um, he got his bachelor's and his JD from the university of Houston and Forbes once called him the king of malpractice lawyers, which I feel like has got to be, has got to be one of the most impressive titles we've had on the show, Steve. <laughs> I, oh, it's, it's great. I'm just wondering that when you go into the doctor's office, are they, wait a minute, hold on the king. Hold of, uh, on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, but that, that is a fantastic title. It's Awesome. And um, well-deserved. Jim uh, Sr. is has been quite the trailblazer in plaintiff's litigation, um, especially in Texas. Just some of the things that he was one of the first or the first to do is to use things that we all do now like it's routine. But he was one of the first to do a lot of these things, to use an economist to help establish um, a plaintiff's lost earnings um, and future earnings, uh, to use a life care planner to help project project the future costs of medical care, to use uh, a working scale model demonstrative in a case, to use a real-time demonstration of a nursing procedure. These are all things that he was kind of, you know, the first to try that that many others have sort of um, adopted. Um, he's gotten many uh, 
fantastic verdicts in products liability and medical malpractice, among others. Um, but as I was mentioning earlier, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I am almost 50 years old and Jim Purdue Sr. has been getting verdicts, uh, million dollar verdicts since before I was born. So that's uh, that a long time and been doing great work. Pretty amazing. Um, he is also an author. He's um, written numerous legal treatises on um, Texas medical malpractice, um, Texas product liability law. And he's also done a lot of books on trial techniques and jury persuasion. One of them, um, who will speak for the victim. I know somebody else, somebody has talked about on the show before, Steve. Yeah, it's um, I'm a very well-known book. And we are so glad to have Jim on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, who Speaks for Justice. That's another one of his books. Um, using the narrative to persuade in trials, speeches, and lectures. And he's got an upcoming book. Am, am I allowed to talk about that, Jim? Sure. Well, okay. Well, too, too late now. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was a secret. <laughs> right. We had to edit it out. Um, right. He has an upcoming book that's going to be on lessons learned speaking for the victim. Um, so we will all be looking forward to that. Um, he also began teaching a course at the University of Houston um, called Storytelling um, that we were talking about before we recorded because he, it's really a lot different from, I think, what's what's typically taught. And um, I know you're teaching a whole class on it, so we can't cover it um, in, at, at, you know, we can't cover all of it in this episode. But, Jim, I'm just hoping you could get tell our listeners a little bit about what you teach in the class or why it sort of fills this gap um, in things that, that people are not being taught. Can we do it now? Yeah, hit me, hit me. Give 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 us the uh, somehow try to give us the abbreviated version. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to keep this awfully brief, but uh, this is something uh, I believe that a, a trial lawyer has to be dedicated to the proposition: you never quit learning, you never quit getting better. And so, over the years of trying cases, I I learned that uh, a trial is not a debate. And I was a debater in college, like a lot of people were, and uh, a moot court participant. And it's just not a debate. A trial is a competition of stories. And the best story is going to win. And what I have found is there is uh, a lot of talk in the legal profession today about storytelling, but a lot of people that say they are storytellers are not really storytellers because if you want to tell a story like an opening statement it is not the story of the trial but that's what people do they get up and tell the story of the trial it is the story of the case and so in simple terms storytelling is starting at the beginning with the case and telling it uh, throughout the trial. And then in closing argument, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about some closing argument techniques, but it follows right on through. But that, in essence, is what I yeah. thought. Well, it so comes through in the materials you sent us, and we'll get to it. But um, one of the PowerPoints you sent us was like so absorbing and interesting, which is really saying something for a PowerPoint when you're not even even hearing anybody talk about it. Right. Um, just the, the first like three pages, you want to figure out what yeah. happened. You, you, you've got to turn the next page. Exactly. Well, so for our listeners, um, Jim Purdue Jr. is a University of Texas undergrad and then University of Houston for law school. He is a many-time Texas super lawyer, top 100 attorneys in Texas, 
named one of the best lawyers in America for personal injury practice. He's tried over 30 cases to verdict, which is really impressive when you look at the kinds of cases that those are with um, multi-million dollar results in the areas of pharmaceutical liability, workplace injury, medical malpractice. He is board certified in personal injury trial law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization, and he's board certified in medical professional liability by the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. Um, He served on the Rules Advisory Committee of the Texas Supreme Court, which I can imagine is a very important and maybe thankless job. I'm not sure, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but very important. Um, And I guess much like his dad, Jim also shares his knowledge at lots of legal seminars, and he also appears on TV. He's been on Good Morning America, Court TV and, and local television as a as a legal commentator. And Jim, I'm interested, especially because. Um, I know before we get into the facts of this case, I know there's a lot you must have have learned from your dad. But what would you say is one of the main ways that you all are different in either how you work on a case or how you try a case? So dad and I were blessed to try many cases together. And um, uh, there are a lot of differences, Yvonne. But um, one of my jokes is dad and I tried a case in Atlanta, actually, in your hometown. It was actually during the ice storm of the Super Bowl, I think. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and my joke about that is we got a we got a corporate apartment up on the north side of Atlanta. We were driving into town. Uh, we were trying a very tough medical malpractice case. And um, it's 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 not a little thing. But my my joke is, is if you can imagine going back to college and living with a really rich roommate who did not care what your schedule was. <laughs> <laughs> that was me living with dad for five weeks because um, dad decompresses after a day of trial with a little bit of cognac and really loud uh, classic movies on AMC till about 3 a.m. I wake up at 5 a.m. to prepare for the next day, um, trying desperately to go to bed at 1030 or 11 <laughs> and get some kind of sleep. So. Um, one of one of many differences as the approach of uh, the grind of trial. I love it. I love it. That's great. That's that's very evocative. I think we all had some college roommate or friend where we can relate to that story. <laughs> um, well, so let me I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit about the actual case that we're here to talk about that you all tried. Um, and then we'll get into what you all have can tell us about it, which is what um, our listeners really want to hear. Um, the case. And I, th- I think, Yvonne, we should note for our listeners, if I if I got it right, Jim uh, and Jim, this is the first case you tried together, right? Uh, this case right here. It was the last case we tried together. Oh, the last case. OK, I thought it was your first case. Oh, it was the last oh. case we tried together. Okay. It was yeah. the first case. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, it was it's the case is called Alexander um versus Battaglia and others, and um we'll get into who those others are. It was a um $3.6 million verdict uh out of the wrongful death of a patient um who desired who died as a result of medical negligence during uh routine orthopedic surgery. We talk a, a lot about uh a lot of our cases scare. I always say, Steve, that when we talk about cases that they scare me, but this is one that uh, definitely scares me um, because it starts with, you know, basic orthopedic surgery at um, in Houston, Texas at Top Surgical Specialty Hospital. Um, it's an outpatient facility. They have uh, seven operating rooms. They do about 7,000 cases per year. 
Um, and in September of 1997, Mark Alexander, who was 40 years old, um, was scheduled to undergo um, arthroscopic surgery on his right shoulder. Um, the anesthesiologist that was um, assigned to his case, Dr. Crowder, um, was not a full-time anesthesiologist and not the one of the anesthesiologists. There were, there were two anesthesiologists who had a contract with the hospital, um, basically an exclusive contract to cover those 7,000 cases per year. Um, that's Dr. Battaglia and Dr. Polk, two other defendants in the case. Um, you can't cover that many cases. They could not cover that many cases. So they had a part-time anesthesiologist, Dr. Crowder, um, who would also cover cases, um, who was not full-time and also not board certified, um, which is crazy. Um, so she was assigned to this case. And so you, you're thinking that I'm done there. Well, I'm not really done there because Dr. Crowder really left Mark's, um, anesthesia in the hands of a nurse anesthetist, a CR, a CRNA, um, named Constance, um, Cernisek? Cernisek? <laughs> Cerno I, lo I lost it. Cernisek. Cernisek. Just go with it. Go okay. with it. Yeah. <laughs> Constance. Um, <laughs> the CNRA. Um, and she was assigned to Mark's case uh, fairly last minute. Um, it sounded like right an hour before the surgery. And, and you know, we'll get more um, into the details. Um, so Mark goes in for surgery and you can see where this is going. Um, Mark basically gets, uh, uh, there are several mistakes, but he's getting inadequate ventilation during the surgery. The um, endotracheal tube is misplaced. Um, he's not getting enough oxygen. As the surgery is proceeding, the alarm goes off at one point on the monitor. The CRNA calls in Dr. Crowder, the, the supposed anesthesiologist, um, who adjusts the monitor and then leaves again. Uh, Mark's heart rate isn't recorded for a period about, of about 17 minutes. And then eventually, um, my understanding is that the surgeon sort of not notices that the curtain is kind of moving and asks the CNR CRNIA, like, what's going on? Um, and she says she's, she's not getting um, oxygen to one of the lungs. And Mark is blue at that point. Um, he's been deprived of blood flow to the brain for um, 10 to 14 minutes. Um, so he, he never wakes up. He ends up in a coma. Um, he's transferred and he's in a coma for two weeks before passing away on October 3rd, uh, 1997. Um, we'll talk about a lot of the things that um, Jim and Jim learned in investigating this case, but among other things, Mark and his family never met the anesthesiologist, um, or the CNR, CRNA who actually did the anesthesia, um, did the anesthesia. And while Mark's suffering these complications and still alive, um, the hospital is unable to tell them who was providing the anesthesia, um, which is crazy. Um, Anyway, so Jim and Jim get involved in the case while Mark is still alive, um, but in a coma. And so there's certain things in this case that they were able to do um, that you're not always able to do that ended up being really powerful in the case. Um, so we'll get more into what they did at trial later. But in October of 1999, um, a Harris County, Texas jury um, unanimously found all four defendants negligent and awarded uh, $2.88 million to Lisa, Mark's wife, um, and $360,000 each to Mark's parents, Ruby and Vernon, um, for a total verdict of about 
million dollars. Um, a, a very significant result. I forgot to say this at the beginning, but listener, people who listen to all our episodes know, but it's very important that they're in Texas because as we have talked about, MedMal's tough everywhere, but it seems like it's real tough in Texas. Um, so a really terrific result um, from a really tragic case. One of the things that right before we recorded that um, Jim Sr. that you mentioned was how important preparation was in this case. Um, and I think some of that probably relates to the fact that you all were contacted while Mark was still alive. Um, so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, what those things, how you set this case up from the beginning, the things that you did early on once you were brought in on the case. Well, this case was referred to us through uh, Vincent Elkins Law Firm, our biggest, uh, one of our biggest uh, firms uh, in the uh, in the city. I'm, I'm sorry for the dog. Uh, we, we have them on a lot of our episodes. Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them. They'll enlarge them. They'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. You know, you know, Yvonne, one of the things I was thinking about this case is, you know, why I, you know, especially all of these cases are scary. But I, I think uh, you, me, uh, our partner, Jeff, and our associate, Josh, have all gotten shoulder at, uh, work done at various uh, various times. Uh, I, I've never had to, to have a surgery done, but I know that uh, that that, um, that Josh did. Yeah. So, uh, so it definitely we, we definitely have shoulder issues in this firm. We I, do. Yeah. <laughs> well, to answer Yvonne's question, th- these people came to us uh, through very high sources, uh, which was. Uh, what can I say? You're flattered, you're honored when that happens. And you take on, at least I did, and I know Jim did too, an added responsibility or a feeling of ability. When they came in, I did something that I hadn't been able to do in other cases. I had thought about it. But I asked uh, the family if they had a uh, phone recording system. And uh, they did. And uh, I told Lisa, would you please uh, keep that tape of all the calls? Because I could imagine in my own mind uh, dealing with a similar situation as this trial was going on, what uh, it would be like because people are going to be calling and asking. And uh, so she did uh, and brought it to me sometime later. I asked her to keep it, preserve it, bring it to me. And it was one of the absolute most powerful pieces of evidence I have ever had. Now, think of it. We, We think, as lawyers, we think of visuals. And we know that the brain processes visuals better, remembers better visuals. We sometimes forget that sound. Uh, We had a couple of sounds in this case that I thought were powerful. One of them we may get to later, and that is the heart rate itself. But she did, and it was people calling when Mark was still at Houston Northwest. How's he doing? it went through two weeks, three weeks of people calling. How's he doing? Where is he now? Well, he's at Methodist now. And on and on. Uh, and up until uh, we heard Mark die, when is the funeral going to be? Mm-hmm. It was literally a, a timeline, a, a verbal timeline of what this widow had gone through. and. Uh, Jim may have some comments on it, but I I don't know where I got that inspiration, but it sure worked. And when we played it, uh, offered it at trial, they objected. And uh, uh, we had a judge. He hadn't been on the bench long, but he uh, he was a good judge. He's now on our Supreme Court. But uh, uh, when they objected, I suggested that we were offering it for the limited purpose, uh, which is something you have to keep in mind, of course, uh, lawyers know, offer for a limited purpose rather than a general purpose, and I offer it for the limited purpose of mental anguish. And what right. better evidence of mental anguish than these calls? 
And so we played it at trial, nothing to see, nothing to see, just that recording. Uh, it was, in my opinion, very, very powerful. The other thing we did is we asked them to videotape Mark, who was now in Methodist, on a ventilator, and we had that video to play. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't got in on the case that early. And Jim may have some comments on those things too. Jim? Well, I think I think the modern world, you I mean this case exists 15 years before the invention of the iPhone, right? But it, but so when Dad talks about playing the tape, it literally was a cassette right. tape out of, a, out of an old school um, phone message machine. Um, but there is a uh, there is a palpable moment where the courtroom goes quiet and you have just that click play. And that is still achievable with the download out of an iPhone. That is still achievable with, uh, you know, voicemails that are through some other system. Um, the, the, the sound system was pretty functional, but it had that great, crackly of you know right. that or vinyl that people still kind of long for and you can still recreate that no matter what the source is um to to get away from the idea that there's powerpoint and there's visuals but you know it it was a a 10 second phone message hey i heard mark still in the hospital and it, it is as dad describes it and i've had I've had voicemails like this in more recent times where then you take them up and then there's a message. I heard Mark died yesterday. Mm -hmm. And then you have a few more on the other side of it. Um, I remember included in the evidence, they brought us something as simple as, and this was six months after this man had passed. Um, like a letter from a credit card company saying uh, to address to her dead husband, just the, yeah. the subtle, the subtle never ending reminders that come through modern technology that you're allowed to say, this never goes away for this widow, no matter how far past it is. And we, we were able, we were able to catch more than we weren't able to, because the case came to us early, but we we continued it all the way through, um, and even and even put in stuff like junk mail, which yeah. just was a, a very subtle. I, I think that's just such a great way to do that because uh, you know you think about it when you're grieving and getting over the loss of a loved one, uh, you know, and then six months, eight months later, you know, something shows up and sort of just brings it all back, and then you relive that moment, and um, it's got to be especially tough on her. Um, you know, the, Yvonne, the thing I was thinking about in Georgia, I'm not sure we get that evidence in because, uh, you know, under the value of the life in Georgia, you, it's taken from the point of the view of the decedent, um, not, you know, for the emotional loss of the, the loved ones that are left. Uh, but I love the concept. I, I, I love the concept of getting that evidence in if, if you can. Yeah. And, and what you bring up is so important to keep in mind, which is that 
um, you know, you guys tried this case, you got this verdict in 1999. I think a lot of people can hear that and think now like, well, yeah, I'd, 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 um, I'd take a video of, of my loved one in the hospital if I think something went wrong. But this is not when this is an easy thing to do. This is not when you've seen it done a lot of times before where, where it's easy to sort of save that material. Um, so I imagine that jury was so absorbed by the idea, by by all the ways you presented um, the evidence, including the other things that we're going to talk about. But, you know, they it wasn't like juries now where there's just anybody wants to take and save a picture of anything at any time. We can all mm-hmm. do it now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't that way, um, you know, even in 1999. What? Like, I don't even know. I think like those disposable cameras that were like wrapped in, you know, with the paper were like just starting in 1999. So anyway. So, so Yvonne, so you're right. So in modern practice, what is your challenge as a plaintiff's lawyer? It's like, get me the pictures, give me all the pictures. And that for a 28 year old is a massive download off their phone. But you know, a 70-year-old who has buried their 30-year-old son, even in my practice today, they don't have that, right? You you have to go to the house and you have to get the printed five by sevens because the pictures um, matter. The pictures tell the story of the before. And we did, we did a very, I mean, we did a lot of dive into um, working through the before of, of Mark's life with his parents, with Lisa, um, you know, and one of the things, but they did not have children, um, which is a, in a, you know, in a morbid fashion, which is the, the mortician humor of plaintiff's lawyers is a valued negative, right? It reduces allegedly, but we, we had to find ways to power up the damage story through a variety of things, um, because you weren't going to have that heartstring of, you know, leaving behind young kids. Yeah. I, I was thinking about, you know, we have done in some cases, Yvonne, where, you know, now, especially with technologies, you get your, if you can get the decedent's phone, uh, find, you know, text messages or voicemails that were left for them. Um, you know, and a lot of people will still do that even after they've heard that they passed on uh, just to sort of leave a memory. Yeah. And then ov- obviously social media is a huge place where you can get stuff, uh, stuff like that, that, that I don't know that we've ever really talked about before on the podcast, as far as, you know, talking about who the, who the lost loved one is. Yeah. Well, and we have talked about, and it's a shame that in Georgia, um, I mean, I guess it can cut both ways, like we've talked about, but because in Georgia, it's from the perspective of the decedent. I mean, I think in all the wrongful death cases that we've tried over the past few years, you've basically gotten a motion in limine on it, um, you know, for the, for the parent or the spouse or whatever to not talk about the effect of this person's death on them, which is just so hard to do. And so unnatural because those things are just intertwined and just not real life. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, But you know, defense lawyers don't live in real life. (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, I mean, let go on with uh, with this case. I mean, so there's so many great things that you uh, that you did in this case. One of the other things I saw that you talked about and I was thinking about, you know, how whether or not you'd be able to get this. But two of the things that you did in discovery that I saw in this case was one, you got what you call were the comparables 
of the nurse anesthetist, which were her uh, anesthesia flow sheets from other patients, it sounded like, so that you could compare that to what she had done that day. And then also, it sounded like you had quite the uh, discovery battle on the machine memory strips from the machine itself. And then that became pretty useful in, in comparing what the nurse, the CRNA was uh, charting as opposed to what the machine was charting. Is that right? Well, I'm going to let Jim talk about the comparables because actually I, I think we used them a little different than I stated in that book chapter you read. I'm, I'm glad I'm still editing it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> before it goes into print. But um, I, I can talk about the, uh, the memory script. I think it's vital that a trial lawyer get as much into the case, and I mean really into it. And and so this was uh, uh, an anesthesia case. And so I fortunately had some contacts at our Texas Medical Center, which is, uh, I think, the largest in the country, maybe the world. And uh, I went out, uh, got with an anesthesiologist, and he took me into an operating room. And he had the anesthesia machine set up and he went over how they work, how they're supposed to work, what the, the anesthesiologist or anesthetist is supposed to do. And uh, I think I had a really good understanding of, uh, of what we were dealing with, which I couldn't have gotten without actually going there. Then the next thing I did is I did a petition to perpetuate testimony because we were still early. I'm not sure we'd even file suit at that point, but I wanted, we found out who this uh, ghost anesthetist was. That's why, that, by the way, that's why the, my book chapter in my upcoming book is called, uh, which is a theme we used uh, throughout the trial. Uh, was death uh, in the hands of strangers because they never met this woman. Mm -hmm. Well, I took her deposition and I took it by video. And I, I think video depositions are probably very common now, but I would, I would tell anybody, and I know Jim would confirm this. If you, if it's worth taking a deposition, take it by video. Mm -hmm. uh, don't, when I started crying cases back when the earth was still cooling, uh, <laughs> all we could do is get transcribed depositions uh, that we had to read to the jury. But now you can videotape it. Thank God we have that technology. This lady showed up, and I had them bring the anesthesia equipment that she used uh, and so that we could talk about it. And the poor lady... You ever had case where you you actually felt sorry for the person that really caused the harm? I mean, yeah. in, a, in a in a sense of <clears throat> why did they end up in that position? Yeah, she definitely. Never, she should never have been in that position. Mm -hmm. But she was redheaded. Uh, she was uh, kind of jerky. Uh, uh, had kind of a. Uh, uh, ambivalent countenance, um, very defensive demeanor, very pleasant. It wasn't unpleasant. But, you know, when you're trying a case, 
I do believe you've always got to look at it from the eyes of the jury. Never forget that. What are they seeing and what are they thinking? And I will tell you, after I got that deposition, forgetting what I was able to do on the facts, I don't think there's a person on that jury that would want her giving them anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And that was what we were trying to create, obviously. Well, it turned out that she she didn't know about, uh, she didn't have a mastery of the monitors. And then what happened after that was that uh, I knew that uh, from my expert, uh, I believe that's where we got it, that these machines, these modern machines, have what's called a memory tape. That is, they tape everything that's going on. Everything the anesthesiologist or anesthetist sees is on a tape. And uh, so I was, after that, I was taking the deposition of one of the nurses that were in the operating room. And I asked her, do you know anything about memory tape? She said, oh, yes, Dr. Battaglia came in after this was over. He pulled the memory tape out, and he put it in his desk drawer. I don't need to tell you how significant that is because now we have evidence he had it. Mm -hmm. And now we have evidence that he still has it. Going to be very hard to say I lost it. Uh, hard to say it didn't exist, and uh, so they couldn't do that, and we filed a motion for them to produce it, which they initially opposed, but eventually we got it, and we got the memory tape. The important thing in this case was as uh, the anesthetist is giving anesthesia, she's making notations of the vital signs. That's one of her primary duties. Keep track of the vital signs, and she has a a chart she puts those on. That's the anesthesia record. The memory tape had vital signs, but there was a difference between time, if you went backwards from when he arrested, there was a difference in the time of 10 to 12, maybe even 15 minutes, which if you compared them would suggest that he laid there without a heartbeat for 10 minutes. And uh, this was in face, this was in face of the uh, uh, tachycardia he had, uh, bradycardia. And let me just, now that we're here at this point, I'll just show you or demonstrate this because this was very effective. We we established this with our one of our anesthesia experts. We again getting back to what we were talking about earlier about how sound, just sound, can be so powerful. This is what you hear uh, when you have a heartbeat of uh, 88 beats a minute, which was what we call his baseline. That's what he had when they started. Let's see if this doesn't work. That is a heartbeat at 88 beats a minute. His heart rate had dropped. He was monitoring it. Two beats a minute. Now let's see how that listens, how that sounds. And she said, 
Yes, but I wasn't worried about that. This is what she said that she wasn't worried about. So that's the evidence we had, and that's the way we presented it. Uh, Jim has written an article. I've got a, a, a chapter in my coming book about demonstrative evidence, and it is so powerful mm -hmm. in trial. Anything you can do that's demonstrative. That's why, you know, you can talk about what people can see. Yes, that's that's important. We do a lot of visual stuff. But think about it. We've got other senses. Uh, for example, what you can touch. What you can touch, we had the slide rule exhibit. They could touch it. Oh, but what about if you had an exhibit they not only can touch, they can manipulate, which is what our slide rule did. You could manipulate it. You could move it to check. And, and line up those times where you, the jury could see it was 10 minutes before they even knew they had a problem. And uh, so what you can manipulate and then what you can hear. And uh, during closing argument, I think I referenced how the operating room would feel and smell. It was cold. You could smell the Benedictine. You could smell the thing. It, it, the more senses we can appeal to, when we're storytellers, uh, if you're a real storyteller, uh, the more you will get into having the jury not only know what happened, why it happened, but how it felt. And that's the key, how it felt. But I'm sure Jim has some comments that extend beyond what I'm, my poor meager mind's able to put up <laughs> So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. 
Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I just want to say the metronome thing yeah. is so spooky. Like I was trying to imagine what it would sound like, but hearing it here, it's so... You know, I think when you, first of all, I hate the sound of a ticking clock anyway. When I go home to my bedroom at my parents' house, they have a clock in there that I put in the closet every time I come home because I'm like laying there in silence and the ticking of a clock, it's just like, yeah. it's awful. But for the same reason, how powerful, because you must have just had complete silence in the room, everybody listening um, to that sound. What a, I, oof, it gives me chills. That's all. I don't have a question. I just had to say that. I worked that into, uh, the rebuttal I gave into the, uh, and we, if we have time, we can talk about the difference between opening, which Jim did such an incredible job of, and rebuttal, because I used a uh, nautical metaphor throughout the, my rebuttal, tying things into nautical. Being an old Navy man, I couldn't resist, but uh, it, it was. Uh, uh, I used it, I replayed it during a rebuttal and referred to it as an SOS, just like ships at sea, yeah. an SOS signal. He was sending out SOS signals and they weren't listening. Yeah. Yeah. And you had not only that, and we talked about this briefly, briefly, but the alarms on the machines had been going off and had, and then had been turned off. Um right. So, I mean, you had you had multiple SOSs going off uh, with regard to uh, what he was going through. So, Steve, um, we, you're making this case sound so damn good. How could anybody lose it? And, no. and, <laughs> there are many ways they can be. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the reality was, is that we were uh, we were fighting a very tough uh, causation case and some also some some corporate and vicarious liability theories that we had to get to. Um, but the, but the, it's funny that, that the, the turning the alarms off created this dichotomy between the silence of, um, you know, what would have been available to her had she not set the low. She, I think what, and dad basically says this in rebuttal, we know how this happened. But they they set the low end parameter of the heart rate at ten. Oh my goodness! So that so that the alarm wouldn't go off, and <sighs> so they were having problems with the alarms because there was variability. It was running high, and they come in and they just move the parameters for the pulse to such extremes that there's no way the alarm can sound, um, and the the. The, the, you know, one of those things that happens in trial that's unique is when we made a conscious decision about this, Dad and I talked about it, is we need a couple of smart, we need some smart people on this jury. Because this case can fall into the medical malpractice defense of, 
nobody wanted this to happen. Everybody tried, you know, their best. Um, nobody's perfect, but these are healthcare providers. And the last thing in the world they would ever want is to have a, a, a patient suffer a bad outcome. And we hear this all the time in jury selection in MedMal. I know this is true in Georgia. It's true everywhere in the country as well. Unless the doctor was intentionally negligent, I don't think I could find him or her responsible. And I'm like, well, yeah. I still haven't seen intentional negligence, right. but um, when right. we get that standard, um, and that's tough, right? And so um, one of the things dad always taught me, which is if you're not up by 42 points at halftime in a met now case and you rest, <laughs> um, you're getting ready to get your butt kicked in the second half. <laughs> and they start moving the ball on the other side of um, your resting. It, 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 it is a difficult thing to hold from the plaintiff's perspective when you're doing med now. So we actually took, and this is counterintuitive and it's worth adding to the conversation. Um we had a we had a vice president of a bank and we had an engineer at a uh, oil and gas firm on this jury that we actually intentionally didn't strike. That is a high wire act from the plaintiff's perspective of the highest order. But we intentionally said, you know, I need I need some people who will understand the concept of damages, but also be able to parse through the science and I'm comfortable with somebody who will apply kind of the, the principles of order. Plaintiff's lawyer 101 is to get off the engineers, right? I mean, engineers mm -hmm. are just such bad plaintiff's lawyers, but plaintiff's jurors. But we, we did it. And part of this conversation is a reminder that sometimes you've got a case that does require somebody in that room and that dynamic of 12 going, it cannot happen the way the defendant said it. Right. Right. And, yeah. and we, we found out post verdict that that's exactly the way it went down. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to do that. I can remember a case that we tried um, where we had a friend of ours come watch us pick a jury. It was a products case. And we left two architects on there and he was an architect and he's like, I don't know if you want to leave those architects on there. They're usually, you know, really conservative. And I, and, and our thought process is, well, they know rules. They, they know rules. And if you don't follow rules, what happens? And they were really good on it. And it turned out well. Um, one thing I should, I, I didn't mean Jim, uh, Jim Jr. to make this sound like this is like a slam dunk case. It certainly wasn't. One of the things that uh, I should point out was that uh, or at least that I saw was that the defendants had hired uh, what looked like four different pathologists uh, and did multiple after the autopsy of, uh, of, of Mark Alexander did multiple uh, uh, slices of, of, of the heart and then basically came up with this defense of idiopathic fibrosis and that this was sudden death and that essentially Mark Alexander was going to die immediately at some point, And it just so happened to happen when he was there on the operating table. Is that basically what they were arguing? Yeah. But Steve, even when you pitch it that way, you do sound like a plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> well, I am a plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that defense, the defense when it comes from you sounds as incredible as it does to us. Yeah. <laughs> they said an epinephrine wash that Dr. Uh, Stewart had used, uh, had, uh, had uh, caused this. They they said when Doctor Stewart Jim, you remember all this? Uh, they said that when he pulled on the sutures that he was on the shoulders that that uh, triggered the heart. But it was all based on this idiopathic uh, uh, fibrosis. They said that uh, 
defect in uh, the heart. And uh, they, I traveled, I forget, it was a long way away. I remember that, a uh, long plane ride to, to one of the experts they hired way up somewhere. And uh, with some difficulty, I got him to give it up. And uh, we played a short excerpt from his deposition at trial, which pretty well shot that down. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, Jim. I just wanted to... Um clarify because I, I don't think I said in this in this in the beginning that Dr. Stewart is the surgeon who was performing the surgery. Um, were there any, was he involved in the case at any point? Um, or was it clear fairly early on that um, it was going to be more useful for him to just be telling y'all about what happened? I know he did some stuff at trial that I want to make sure we talk about, but um, was did you ever think about bringing him in the case or was it pretty clear that he didn't really have a responsibility well, this was not an orthoscopic surgery error. Right. <laughs> right. It was, right. It was very clearly early on. This was a respiratory compromise leading to an anoxic brain injury. And yeah. uh, orthopedic surgeons um, may get dismissed as carpenters, but that carpenter had nothing to do with that brain damage. That's right. We needed to keep him friendly because uh, he was going to be, and maybe we'll get time to talk about that, but we needed him friendly, and he became a tremendous witness for us because of the way we presented him. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, let's talk about what y'all did with him um, at the trial, how you were able to use his testimony in in such a powerful way. Well, we did something that uh, is... uh, I will tell you, it goes back to a great trial lawyer by the name of Earl Rogers. And I don't know if you've ever had any of your people on your show talk about Earl Rogers, but he was a, he was the greatest criminal lawyer in California back in the 1920s. Uh, his daughter, Adela Rogers St. John's, wrote a book uh, that I read, I think, when I was probably just a starting practice law. Uh, and he was an innovator in so many things that people are using now, like uh, uh, telling uh, part of your argument, telling it in the first person. Um, uh, He did that, but one of the things he would do is he would recreate uh, one of his big criminal trials involved a shooting at a poker game, and he sat up in the courtroom a facsimile of the poker game and where the people were sitting. And so what we did in this case is we knew from talking, we had, I think, taken his deposition, but uh, we set up in the courtroom uh, a facsimile of the operating room. And uh, we set up tripods uh, and brought a sheet from home uh, to recreate the operating room table because in the operating room, the patient is laying, they turn him on his side through the surgery, and then there's the sheet that separates the uh, doctor, the surgeon, who is really looking at a monitor and manipulating instruments, and the anesthetist. And we took him into the present tense. We asked him, can you take us there to the operating room? Can you take us there that day? And I've now, keep in mind, I hadn't prepared him. I mean, we didn't go through this ahead of time. 
but he knew that we had treated him fairly and he was going to be fair with us. And uh, so he did. And he, we got him talking in the present tense. And we were asking questions in the present tense. Who is there? Not who was there. Who is there? Where are they standing? And we led up to uh, the drape being shaken. And I said, can you show us uh, what's happening? And he took the drape and he shook it. And uh, what is happening now? Not what happened next. What is happening now? He said, I'm, I asked the nurse anesthetist, what is going on? And she replies, I'm not getting air in one lung. And then they stop the procedure and they turn him over and he is blue. His face is blue, his trunk is blue, his legs are blue, he is blue. That is advanced, advanced cyanosis. He has been deprived of oxygen. They were saying they got it right away. They got right on it. You don't turn that blue unless you've been without oxygen for 10 or 15 minutes. He's already brain damaged. He's already dead. So we use that technique to create drama and suspense and curiosity. Powerful, powerful techniques, but Jim may have a different view of it. No, I, I, I don't. It was, um, we actually got a hospital uh, gurney into the courthouse, we brought it up in the freight elevator. And we did, it was, it was amateurish after that point. We had, <laughs> we had an actual hospital uh, gurney to recreate the bed, but that was really the jury got it. And it was, and from there it was uh, our own bed sheets that we brought and we, and we clipped them to uh, like uh, easels. Uh, and it looks like I've, I've been at the presence of three cesarean sections of each of my boys. I mean, it looks <laughs> right. the exact same. We had it kind of draped up and we, and we had, we owned a, or we at least an anesthesia monitor and we had that in the courtroom because we were using that constantly anyway. So we, and we had him configure it exactly as dad describes it. And the, the end point of that. And again, because he was, he, he was not our witness and we did not want to be in a position of anybody alleging that we were working with him. He was the surgeon. Um, he was not friendly to us, but he was not happy about how this happened. But he gets to the moment and he, I, I small digression. Um, I, I honor the people from trial lawyers college and psychodrama work, but this was first person courtroom direct examination by a witness who had not had any work done with him on it, but he was able to go there um, in that mental recreation because it obviously meant a ton for him. And we got him by the third question in the present tense, the witness then had lost the tendency to go back to past tense. He, he stays in present tense with the questioner. And it is now 
active there. And I, and I remember the end point, which was I, 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 I'm, I'm pulling the drape back and I look down and dad says, what are you seeing? And he says, it looks like he's been outside on a freezing night for a long time. Wow. And that was just Stewart's own analogy for what he saw. You can't, you, I mean, you can't like script that, right? It's just, it's the, it's the ability to kind of get them in the access to the real memory um, that is done through that uh, work with present tense. Uh, you can call it psychodrama. You can call it a lot of different things, but that was done with no prep in a courtroom. And it was because of the equipment and the setting and then the language that was used uh, that we were able to recreate that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I'm curious on just say from a from a trial lawyer logistical standpoint, like the gurney that you had, did you guys go and buy that or did you uh, borrow it from a hospital or um, and then you said you leased the uh, anesthesia equipment? How did you uh, obtain all that stuff? So I remember that because um, I was bottom of the totem pole when we tried this right. case. While we tried <laughs> yeah. um, so I remember I had to figure out how to get the hold of the anesthesia machine. And that really was there was a there was a, a medical supply company over by the medical center. And it was the exact same one. And um, I don't think we bought it. We were able to lease it somehow for too much. The gurney we took on loan. Um, like as a favor from somebody we knew that had a nursing home or something. I, I don't remember the details of it. We were like, can we have a hospital bed for two days? And they're like, sure. We like you guys. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. That is great. Wow. One uh, um, of the, Oh, go ahead. Well, Steve, I I don't want to get us off track, but I do. We talked about it a couple times, and I I feel like it's related to what we're talking about. And then we've talked we're talking about the different things you all did demonstratively, and we mentioned the slide rule exhibit a couple times. And I just want to make sure that that um, you all describe what you had put together because I think you had done it with the intention that it would be once you could you know once you could get it in that it would be something really helpful for the jurors that the jurors would really engage with. And you learned later that it was basically the first thing they did when they began their deliberations. But um, I'm just hoping you can explain um, what it was for, for our listeners. Well, it was about, uh, yeah, of course, I'd say uh, three feet uh, long, uh, wide, uh, two or three feet tall. And it was a, uh, it, what it was, it was the the the, the numbers from the vital signs uh, from the monitor on one slide that you could slide the the uh, numbers from the vital signs from her record, her written record she prepared that you could slide. So you could you could slide them and you could line them up, and uh, which worked real well going into closing argument because there were one blood pressure that was kind of an unusual blood pressure. And if you line those blood pressures up is where you could demonstrate. And I know y'all have read the closing arguments, uh, but you could line them up and you would see if you lined them up that he had 
laid on that operating table for 10 minutes at least without a heartbeat. And uh, so the the interesting thing about the slide rule, I tried to get it in with our experts and uh, the defendants objected. Uh, at least this is the way I remember it, Jim. The defendants objected and then they put on an expert. And when they put on their expert, I said, uh, tell me the things you've looked at to form your opinion. And he mentioned him, and I said, well, what about this? Did you look at that? Yes, I looked at that to form my opinion. Well, it's in. <laughs> I hope it's in evidence. I, I think it's part of their case. That's when I got it in. No, it was it's better than that. It was the, the ultimate arrogance of a defense expert. <laughs> um, so dad's like, what did you look at to come up with your opinions? And he says... Well, I really enjoyed your slide rule um, concept because I was more than happy to use that. And, dad, <laughs> and dad's like, so so you liked it? So I loved it. I, I, I used it a bunch. So did you rely on it? And he is now just hooked. Yeah. Right? Like, I absolutely relied on that coming up with my opinions. That happened in the first five minutes of cross. And the defense lawyer is losing his mind. But, man, he was more than happy to go in that intellectual rabbit hole. And it was done because after he said that, dad turns to the judge and says, Judge, I'm going to reoffer plaintiff's exhibit 51. And the judge says, it's in. Let's go. That's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) That's great. One thing that we haven't talked about and the theme that I like that you developed um, was that when the when the uh, CRNA started noticing that there were some issues with regard to uh, the vital signs, her first instinct was not to check the patient, but was to start uh, messing with the equipment. Can you talk about that a little bit about what she did after she noticed the vital signs were not where they should be? Why don't you take that one, Jim? Well, so... Uh, to kind of give the listeners a sense, I mean, the slide rule became an issue because we have this memory strip that is kind of unquestionable, right? It, it is data straight from the machine. And then we have a handwritten anesthesia record. And I increasingly see this in bad mal cases. If you can compare it to kind of a, a, a baby case, you've got the fetal monitor strip. Most of the annotations now are directly into the computer system related to the fetal monitor strip. But there used to be a time, right, where as the paper came out of a fetal monitor machine, a nurse would circle an area of question about what the tracing was showing or they would make a note. And you needed to get that paper strip um, to be able to correlate it because the pure the pure what's in the what's in the machine is not telling you what the nurse is recording about his or her thought processes while it's coming out of the machine. And that bedside nursing dynamics. So imagine stepping back a decade earlier where you've got an anesthesia record where the nurse is basically just looking at a diastolic, a systolic, a diastolic, and a heart rate. And she's writing those down on an old school anesthesia record. But we find there is actually a um, a strip inside the machine that doesn't come out in real time normally, but they can go back and get. And that was kind of the discovery in the case that kind of tipped. And we had 
these this second piece of evidence that could show that the anesthesia record was a fiction mm-hmm. because there was no way to correlate what she was charting with the times she was charting it to the reality of when the code was called. Their defense to the case was the code was called within nine minutes of her recognizing and that there was an interval time, according to the standard of care, that you would miss the drop of, of an absent heartbeat. And they called the code immediately when she realized that he had gotten into such bradycardia that he actually had a secession of the heartbeat. The reality was the strip, when you compared the blood pressures, would show you he did not have a heartbeat for, and my dad's wrong about this, 20 minutes before they called the code. And it was the slide rule that allowed you to lock up the numbers. So the constant, if you imagine the axis in the middle is only, um, it has nothing to do with time. It has to do with events. It has the time of the called code, and it has the time of the heartbeat stopping as a gap, but it's not tied to time your time axes are on the top and the bottom slides of the slide rule. So you line those up and that's when you realize she's missing the absence of a heartbeat for 20 minutes before she calls the code. And so Steve, to your point, and this is, this is a system error that I've used as an analogy multiple times since Um, malpractice cases don't happen because one person makes a mistake, usually there are multiple people making multiple mistakes of errors. An airplane does not go down generally because of pilot error. And the only way an airplane crashes is because of multiple systemic failures. And more often than not, they have to do with the human individuals questioning the data they're getting from the equipment. The the data they're getting must be a machine error. So they spend five, six, seven minutes going, the machine can't be telling me that. That can't be right. Mm -hmm. And so she spends seven or eight minutes figuring out why is the machine telling me that I'm getting 50 over 30 blood pressures with a heart rate of 22? And and by by that point in time, right, he is completely being oxygen deprived until he finally gets to a bradycardic arrest. Um, And so she and so the alarm is not going off because they've 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 put the alarm parameters to the point they won't go off. But just like a pilot who flies into uh, the side of an uh, of a mountain, it's like, well, that can't be right as far as my altitude. Check change the chain. Well, where are we? Right. And something has to be going wrong. Next thing you know, they're inverted and they put it into Chesapeake Bay. The same thing is going on with this person. She is looking at the machine going, the data I'm getting can't be right, as opposed to trusting the data and dealing with the clinical science of the patient. And we were able, that actually did appeal as that, that appealed a lot to the oil and gas engineer, right? Is you trust the data first and work the data to make it to solve the problem before you begin questioning the data as your solution pathway. And that was what explained the differential between them allegedly calling the code when she figured it out versus what the slide rule proved, which is she had no heart rate. She had no heart rate 
for 20 minutes before she called the code. Um, and and I, I, that analogy, I think, works. It, it, it's, it's different cases where you can take it to. But the idea essentially is, is for any safety process, you need to test the, you need to trust the data first mm-hmm. before you question the machine. Um, take care of your patient before you question your machine. Um, we see this in baby cases. Uh, I'm sure you, Yvonne and Steve, have seen that baby cases, right? It's, well, the strip is not, you know, telling me that. Certainly there's something else that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had that exact same thing here in an anesthesia context. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask before we move on to another subject is I, I noticed that the that the CRNA uh, after after uh, Mr. Alexander is taken to the hospital because he's in a coma, uh, and and the family asks the surgeon or is talking to the surgeon and he doesn't even know who the CRNA is, and the CRNR, CRNA had gone home, but was supposed to come back in a day or two to fill out a report but then never came back. And I guess I was just wondering, did the CRNA basically quit being a CRNA or just completely quit the job after this event? I think she kind of disappeared, but we did, uh, they did produce her when we subpoenaed for our uh, deposition of her. Um, I want to mention one thing. Yeah. Malpractice cases in Texas, we they are very, very difficult to determine what happened. And the reason is, and they they did that in this case, we have in Texas what's called a hospital committee review uh, privilege. The peer review privilege or something along those lines? Yeah, it, it basically says that if uh, a hospital looks at an event after it happened, investigates it, you cannot determine what they determined. Yeah, You can't see it. And so we're always running into uh, facts, evidence that would help us, but they claim it's privileged. Now, think about it. If Jim's talking about airplanes going down, if you lose a loved one in an airplane crash, the the FAA is going to investigate and you can get that. If you're injured in an industrial accident, OSHA is going to investigate that. You're going to get a lot of plaintiff lawyers base their cases on those investigations. If you're in an auto wreck case, In Texas, the highway patrol or local police are going to investigate that accident. Just about any way you can get hurt, somebody investigates, and as a plaintiff lawyer, you can get that information. Mm -hmm. Not in a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Not in a hospital. And uh, so you have to kind of really start from uh, with a blank slate and dig it out yourself. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah. and, and you know, it, I mean, if we really want to get into a discussion of the peer review privilege, I mean, one, I think it's uh, uh, routinely abused by the defense. I mean, it's they they call everything peer review, but it's something to me that's outdated. Um, it, it needs to go away. And, um, you know, so that people can have free access to what happens in their medical care. But um, well, I and absolutely I mean, it, agree. An agree. example is, is what that that was initially it sounded like at least an argued basis for why they didn't want to give you all that memory strip was peer review, which right. is how was that peer review that was happening at the time of the event? Right, right. 
Yeah, we I went up it. on mandamus on that. Really? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, my blood pressure is going, I'm just flashing back to so many yeah. meet and confers. I tell you, so dad and I have tried a case in Georgia and I've never heard a jury charge more miserable than the one that's read to a jury <laughs> in a medical malpractice case than the one I heard in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, hindsight that, charge. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, that, said, that said, I, I still would rather practice in Georgia. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah right. exactly. Yeah. You know, our charges, when you read them, when you put them all together, when you put all the medical negligence charges together, you're like, how does anybody win these cases ever? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, um, you know, we haven't really talked about, um, you know, with, I mean, two issues that I want to make sure that we talk about. One is, uh, is, is Jim Jr. We talked about this before. Um, you, you did go up on appeal after this verdict um, about the issue of um, uh, of whether or not the the anesthesiology practices were directly responsible for what happened. And, and if I can just briefly say it, the two anesthesiologists, uh, Dr. Uh, Battaglia and Dr. Polk had uh, uh, professional associations that were provided anesthesia. Neither of those doctors actually treated Mark Alexander from what I recall. And so there was an argument that the, their PA shouldn't be held responsible. And you were successful in finding direct negligence against the, the PAs and then holding that up through the Supreme Court. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Steve. Um, so uh, Senior gives deserves credit because he, he really did help write the law of Texas medical malpractice until the legislature undid everything he did during a 30-year career up to that point in time. But um, the, the unique aspect of this case when it comes to kind of one of the challenges at trial is it's, so we've talked a lot about liability to the CRNA who just completely blows it. Single lung intubation combined with an esophageal stethoscope that fails the cuff. So you don't, so you don't, so you don't have a good seal with a cuff because their esophageal stethoscope is down into the lung and you've got a one lung intubation. That's a recipe, right? That's, that's the systemic multiple failure facility. That's trying to do 7,000 procedures a year with basically two anesthesiologists managing seven CRNAs and seven different ongoing operating rooms. That's a systemic failure. So the, 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 the corporate liability theories that we had to put together to be able to maximize the potential recovery, because the hospital, I mean, this the, the, this was unique in that the CRNAs were employees of the of the anesthesiologists. They were not the anesthesia. The CRNAs were not hospital employees, so we did not have a vicarious pathway to the institution based on the negligence of the CRNA. That then led us to discover the theory that the anesthesiologist had this exclusive contract to provide anesthesia services. So the appellate issue, which was um, dealt with and affirmed, and there's a, and I will say by an all Republican uh, court of appeals was no, the Purdue's did produce evidence of direct negligence against the PAs. And our theory was that the, the contract in and of itself, the contract that was executed by the professional associations said 
These two professional associations shall provide anesthesia services to the outpatient facility that complies with all governmental, state, and um, anesthesia standards of care. So we basically got to ANA standards through the contract (laughs) that created a standard, not just of supervision, but the delivery by the CRNA. That was our theory through our expert of direct negligence against the PAs created by the contract, tort duty, affirmed by the uh, Court of Appeals, um, and then affirmed by the Texas Supreme Court. And the interesting end note to that is Priscilla Owen wrote the opinion of the Texas Supreme Court. For your listeners who know anything about the Fifth Circuit, Priscilla Owen was one of our most conservative Texas Supreme Court justices. And the last opinion she wrote on her way out the door to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, where she is now chief of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the most, I don't know, the 11th maybe in competition. It's close. (laughs) (laughs) But between the two of them, um, that competition is always close, but she is the chief of the fifth and a very, very conservative jurist. But her last appeal on the Texas Supreme Court was affirming our verdict and our direct uh, negligence theories against these two PAs. But we we built it out of the contract, Steve. And then the evidence came out of a um, com- combination of experts, ANA standards, and just the evidence of the case of her being so incompetent. There's no way you're complying with that contractual duty, which is a tort duty for undertaking to provide anesthesia services. And that's a that's very legalistic, but that's the way we got to them. And then yeah. I know it, I know Georgia's a pure comparative state. We had we had pure comparative, and I believe we told the jury to put 30 on the CRNA, 30 on the supervising, and then 2020 on the two PAs, and they did exactly that. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned one thing real quick too. It it's more of uh not as cerebral approach as uh Jim would take, but then I'm less cerebral. But uh, the standards he's talking about, one of those standards uh, that they said they'd abide by, provided that uh, when you give anesthesia or medical care at POPs, that the patient is uh, uh, has a right to know who's doing it, who's providing the services. And uh, that's how we got our theme, uh, death at the hands of strangers, because uh, they never met this lady. Yeah. Never met her. And that's why uh, for those people who are maybe not lawyers that listen to this show, if you're going to have surgery done, always say, who's giving giving me the gas? Who's giving me the gas? And you want to be sure you meet them and be sure, by the way, that who's giving you the gas is a real MD anesthesiologist, not a CRNA. I'm not putting down all CRNAs, but there is a difference in the training and experience from an anesthesiologist and CRNA. Yeah, yeah. It's just another, I mean, it's such a common theme, and I don't know how much you all had to um, hit it in trial because you had so many other um, themes that you could work with and so much powerful um, evidence that you could work with, but it, it just always makes me go back, Steve, to just thinking about how off, how 
the betrayal of trust mm -hmm. that in these yeah. cases, but especially the medical negligence cases and the idea that a lot of people, um, especially non-lawyers, people maybe who don't have medical professionals in the family, never think they think everybody that's going to be doing anything for a procedure is a doctor. They think, um, you know, yeah. they don't even question or or whatever. Th I, I, don't, I don't know if I knew that CRNAs could do that much stuff related to anesthesia um, before reading about this case. Well, and it can, it, you know, when you go in for any kind of procedure, but it's, you know, outpatient procedure, it can be very overwhelming to the patient who's, you know, basically out of their element. And then they have all these different people come in there, ask them all kinds of questions, prodding them. You know, I, I mean, from their standpoint, they want to get through this as quickly and as safely as possible. But, you know, they they're trusting all of these different people that are walking in the room. Right. Well, and you think about when you're in the hospital, which I've, I've only been once, um, but it was as a grown up and as a, um, a lawyer who had done medical negligence. And even I found myself like there was so much stuff that I just that I mean, I was sick, but there was so much stuff that I didn't ask about or push back about because I like I just like wanted them to like come when I actually needed them and I didn't want them to hate me Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that I'm like, no, man, that was not the right um, approach. You got to be the squeaky wheel. You, Ask all you, the questions. <laughs> you, you know, along those lines, I wanted to make sure we pointed out to our listeners another theme that uh, it might have been you, Jim Jr., that made this in, in one of the arguments that um, uh, that you talked about that, you, you know, you I think you had just been married maybe a couple a year or two before. And you talked about the oath that you made to your wife on that day and then talked about the oath that other professionals make, like when a pilot makes an oath to get you there safely and then the oath that a doctor takes and that, you know, and I, I, I really like that sort of, uh, uh, bringing it all together of, uh, of, of, you know, that, that this, that when they bring in there to do treatment on you, especially when you're going to be completely unconscious that they're, you know, that you're, you're putting them yourselves in their hand and they're taking a note to, to do the best they can by you. But I, I, I like that theme is what I was pointing out. Well, thank you. Thank you, Steve. You know, I think you, uh, they say you write what you know, and uh, as a trial lawyer, you attach the emotion to what's present for you. And I was, I was pretty newly married, didn't have children. Um, but if I may, because this is not a story for dad to tell, he's, he's somewhat humble about it. Um, the, the, that dovetails into something that overlaid this trial and says a lot about my father. And um, I think probably says a lot about the trial and the verdict uh, because it flows through all of his honesty and presence as an advocate while he was trying the case. Um, this trial date came up in my father's um, tenure uh, uh, relationship, uh, got diagnosed with ovarian cancer and went into the hospital we tried this case um, over three weeks while his fiance was dying of ovarian cancer in Methodist Hospital. So when we talk about these trial days, literally, Stephen Yvonne, our day would end and we would go to the hospital. Um, I would sit in the hallway and read transcript and dad would sit at the bedside of his um, uh, fiance. And, and we did that for uh, the first two weeks of trial. Um, and then she passed on November 1st. We closed on November 3rd and we took our verdict on November 4th. 
I took the verdict because dad was um, actually at um, the funeral home with my wife. Um, and I called him and I said, we have a verdict. And dad was terrified because he thinks it's way too soon. We're, we're not going to win uh, with a verdict that's come back that fast because they hadn't been out at that point, you know, six hours. Um, and uh, they came back with this verdict um, and multiple of them asked how your father's doing because they had read the obituary in the paper um, that day. Now, that sounds a little uh, jaded, but I think it was from a place of empathy. Um, you know, I think most people ask for a continuance under that circumstance. But dad, uh, um, as as uh, a lifetime advocate and, and somebody who was very connected to this family, couldn't see himself getting out of this trial date. Um, and the reason why this case, I think, will always be as important to me as any is, is that the, the life story of it and the microcosm of what was going on outside of the courtroom and what we were dealing with on a daily basis. And for him, literally making he was making fuel arrangements the day we had closed. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, we we. We went through it um, and uh, we had these clients came to the funeral and we had uh, we had two jurors come to the funeral. Um, And I think that is a statement to while I would question my dad's psychology for being so committed to the practice of law and the profession of law that he thought he could get through that grief by burying himself in the work. There's an honor of burying yourself in some way and fashion in the work. And I will tell you that Joan, who we lost, honored him for burying himself in the work and not just, I mean, what do you do? Sit up at the hospital for 10 hours a day. And I don't be dismissive of that. But dad buried himself for work, not to distance himself from the grief, but to have something to be done. And um, we we buried his fiance um, four days after this verdict, um, and and went through it. And uh, it's a testament to him and his commitment to the profession. But I think that those people came to that funeral and um, wanted to be with him was because there was a pure honesty that flowed through the way he presented the case about this loss because he was going through the exact same thing you talked about a little bit of um, kind of the, when it comes to the voicemail or the damages, but um, there was a, when I look back on it, a purity to his um, advocacy uh, that was, uh, dad's a great advocate, but there was a purity in it because of the suffering that he was going through and literally, you know, the day of, and so uh, ultimate professional, but um, for what it's worth to those that would say, you know, I, I, I could or wouldn't or whatever, or that's a, that's a wall against grief. I would say that, you know, there is something to be said for um, throwing yourself into it and being honest and, and, and doing the work, um, even in times of challenge. And, and this verdict says a lot about that and, and his commitment to that. Yeah. Well, that is incredibly moving and powerful and, and, you know, it, not only commitment to the work, but a commitment to your clients. I mean, because, you know, it's hard 
uh, you know, at least nowadays, hard to get your cases to trial. So, you know, when you get them there and you you've uh, poured your heart out in the courtroom, um, you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to let that go for your clients. Uh, you want them to have their day and they want to have their day. Um, but that's just um, I I don't you know, I I, I um, you know, hope I, I, I never know anything like that. And I, I can't imagine how you got through it. Um, but it, it does speak uh, volumes about um, uh, about your uh, commitment and your advocacy. And, and, uh, and I'm uh, so sorry for your for your loss, Jim Senior. Well, it, uh, one thing it teaches you is when you lose somebody dear to you, I don't care what people say. You don't get over it. Yeah. I, not a day goes by. I don't think of John. It's yeah. A good day. But I will say one thing. We live in a small world, uh, us lawyers, but there's a big world example uh, that I kind of like to keep in mind. You may not know this, but uh, when Abraham Lincoln was about to leave to go give the Gettysburg Address, his son Todd, his youngest son, got very sick. They weren't sure he was going to live. And uh, there was questions whether he should make that trip. And when he left the White House, they thought Todd was going to die. He wrote that Gettysburg Address while he was thinking his son was dying in the White House. But he still made the appearance and he still gave two minutes of greatest speech in English language probably. Yeah. And he did it under those circumstances and they asked him how he could do it. He said, because it needed, I needed to be there. I was trying to save the country. Well, we lawyers can't save the country, uh, but sometimes we can save our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, this has been just a, a great interview. I, I really appreciate your time. I want to make sure um, or, or remind everybody we've been talking about the uh, Alexander versus Crowder uh, Battaglia uh, Polk uh, case that was tried in 1999 in Harris County, Texas, for the uh, death of Mark Alexander and um, uh, resulted in a $3.6 million verdict. Is there anything about that trial that you want to make sure our listeners know about that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I would mention one thing uh, that might, I know y'all will be sending, I think, uh, written uh, things they can read, uh, the things I assume we sent you. Yeah. Uh, one thing about storytelling and, and trial advocacy. Uh, one of the things Jim uh, mentioned, I think uh, Yvonne asked him the difference between him and me. Uh, Jim is very smart. And, and I, I believe that when you do your closing arguments, plenty of, we get to make two arguments. And they ought to be different. They ought to be very different. Your opening is really your cognitive argument, what I call cognitive, uh, rational, reason, cerebral, logical. Jim is great at that. I mean, you read his argument, you can see it. 
And it is an argument to tell people how to build their verdict, how to build their verdict. Rebuttal, a lot of lawyers think rebuttal is when you get up and answer what the defendant said, and it is so wrong to just get up and try to answer everything they say. Uh, I, I, I taught my students, don't do that. Don't do that. Pick out something they say that you can turn against them. Don't try to answer everything. And uh, rebuttal argument is an effective argument. When you open argument, it's telling them how to build their verdict. But the rebuttal ought to tell them why they ought to build their argument, why they ought to return that verdict. And so it is. You can call it emotional, you can call it effective, whatever. But they're two different arguments, two different reasons, two different approaches. Yeah. And that is why when we tried cases together, he always got rebuttal. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, this has just been such a pleasure. And uh, I really have enjoyed having uh, both of you on the show. I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Jim Purdue Sr. and Jim Purdue uh, Jr., um, you can look them up at PurdueAndKid.com uh, out of Houston, Texas. That's P-E-R-D-U-E uh, and it's spelled out K-I-D-D.com. Jim and Jim, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for Absolutely. inviting my son. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.